Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, January 14th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. It's the beginning of the year, and a lot of us are probably thinking about ways in which we might make 2019 slightly better, if not immensely better, than 2018. In these turnover moments, we think about the things that we want to change. But we don't often think about when is the best time to actually do the changing. And yet, timing is everything, and a lot of us already know that. If you're in the right place at the right time, then good things can happen. But oftentimes, we miss opportunities just because we weren't prepared or because we didn't see them happening soon enough. If you look back on your life, you might notice that when you made a particular decision was just as important as the ultimate decision itself. And yet we don't actually often put a lot of time into thinking about when is the best time to make a particular decision. Even in our daily routines, we might think about the things that we want to accomplish in a day, but not what the best time of day is to tackle each of the things on our to-do list. And yet there is a best time of day. This week's episode is an interview with Daniel H. Pink. He's the author of many best-selling books, including Drive, one of my personal favorites, and The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, The Last Career Guide You'll Ever Need. And he's been a contributing editor at Fast Company and Wired, as well as a columnist for the Sunday Telegraph, and his essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review, and many other publications. Daniel Pink, welcome to Inquiring Minds. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, you're on the East Coast, is that right? That is correct. And it's 2 p.m. for you? That is correct. So that's not a great time to be having this conversation. Well, Indra, that's one reason why I took a walk. Uh, I actually went for a run right before this. <laughs> okay. Uh, no joke. I actually, um, one of the ways that I configured my day today, knowing that I was going to talk to you, and I actually have uh, another phone conversation uh, at I'm talking to you at 2 p.m. Eastern time. I have another phone conversation at uh, 3 p.m. And I knew that it wasn't the ideal time of day. So I actually change. I usually run in the late afternoon. I actually changed my run uh, today. I ran and one of my kids is home. Both, both my kids are home from college. So I did a five mile run with my daughter right before this. So I am uh, in much better shape than I typically am at 2 p.m. So let's unpack this for our listeners. Why is 2 to 3 p.m. probably the worst time of day to do something like an interview? Well, I mean, here's I can take a step back on that. I mean, what we know from a, a pretty rich body of science, and it's science, and I think your listeners especially would be 
would be interested, you know, might be interested in this is that there is a science of timing, but it's not a single science. It's research that's spread across, I mean, 20, 25 different disciplines that give us clues about, you know, when, when we should do things. And, and, and I think one of the biggest takeaways from this research is that our cognitive abilities do not remain static over the course of the day. They change. And, and the way they change is reasonably predictable. And one of the things that we know is that, is that the early to mid-afternoon for most people is, a, is our, the time of our, basically our weakest time during the daylight hours cognitively. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what that pattern looks like for most people. And I guess we should, we should start out by saying there are different chronotypes. So yes. people, you know, yeah, who, who, so, so, so first let's, let's talk about chronotypes and yeah. then, and then we can sort of go into what their day looks like. Right. So a chronotype, chronotype is basically what's your propensity? Are you someone who gets up early and goes to sleep early? Or are you someone who gets, stays up late and goes to sleep late? Now well, I heard... have small children. So go ahead. No, you go know. ahead. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. No, I have small children, so I have no choice. I have to get up. Ah, early. okay, but that's interesting. But that's an inter- But small children are really interesting um, because because our chronotype changes over time. And and what we know about about little kids. How old are your kids? Uh, one's five, and the other one's four months. Oh, good lord! All right, so <laughs> so so what we know about little kids is that they get up early. And start running around like crazy people from the moment they they wake up. Now your four your four month old is probably not running around like a crazy person, but soon. Um, and so um, and, and so and, and the thing is, what's interesting about this is that we we have certain kind of uh, folkloric, popular, culturally notions of various things in science, some of which turn out to be true, some of which turn out not to be true. And so people say, oh, I'm not a morning person. Oh, I'm a night owl. And it turns out there's actually a lot of science behind that. There's an entire field called chronobiology, which is the study of our of our, of our biological rhythms, particularly our diurnal rhythms. And, and what we know is, is that about 15% of us are very strong morning people, larks. About 20% of us or so are very strong evening people, owls. And about... 80, about, about two thirds of us uh, are in the middle. Uh, what I like to call what I like to call third birds. And and what we know is, to, I'm oversimplifying a bit, but in the name of clarity, is that about eighty percent of us move through the day in this fashion. We have a peak, we have a trough, we have a recovery. We have our peak early in the day, uh, you know, typically in the in the morning. That's our time of highest vigilance. We are able to bat away distractions. We're able to lock down and focus. Trough is the early to mid afternoon. That's a sign of, I mean, really, there's a lot of data about just big drops in performance across many, many, many domains of life and work and, um, and, and human endeavor. And then in the late afternoon or early evening, we have a recovery period, which is a time where our mood goes back up. Uh, our, our vigilance doesn't go back up, but our mood goes back up. And we, we're, we're good at things involving some kind of mental looseness, like iterating new ideas or brainstorming and whatnot. So peak trough recovery. Now, that's 80% of us. The people who are owls, the people who have these evening chronotypes, they have it hard uh, because uh, most of the traditional world of work doesn't accommodate them very well. And so what we know about them, the main thing about, about owls is that they reach their peak in the late afternoon, evening, often well into the evening. And 
the whole point of all of this is that, again, going back to the big idea here, is that our cognitive abilities don't stay the same throughout the day. And if we know how they change and what kinds of tasks we're best at during these different stages, we can make better day-to-day decisions about when to do things. And there are material effects on performance. So one of the things I really liked about your book was how you kind of uh, made it very clear about the kind, different kinds of thinking that are better at certain times of day um, by posing two problems. So there's the Linda problem and then there's the coin problem. So, so tell us those two problems and when we are most likely to solve them. Okay, so let's talk about Linda, right? So this is a famous problem from Daniel Kahneman, the uh, psychologist who won the Nobel Prize in, econ- in economics. And here's how it goes. So I'm going to tell you about a person, Linda. She's 31 years old, single, outspoken, and very bright. In college, Linda majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice and participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. So that's a description of Linda. And here is the question that researchers ask people. Uh, Before I tell you more about Linda, let me ask you a question about her. Which is more likely? A, Linda is a bank teller. B, Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. So A, Linda is a bank teller. B, Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. Now, what happens is that people, what's weird is that a lot of people get this question wrong. This is a question that's not a matter of opinion. It has a right answer. (laughs) And the answer is A, it is much more likely, it is more likely that Linda is a bank teller than it is that Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement because the second one has two conditions rather than one, or another way to think about it is that bank tellers who are active in the feminist movement is a subset of all bank tellers. Okay, you, And the subset can't be larger than the set of which it is part. So if I said, Linda is a bank teller and is an expert archer, <laughs> um, mo- most people would, you know, because they were, so anyway, the thing about this is that it's called the conjunction fallacy, and it's a sign of where our reasoning go right. Here's why it's germane to what you're talking about. It turns out that larks and third birds are more likely to get this question right early in the day and wrong later in the day. Okay, very consistent with what you with what your are you know many people's gut instincts are. However, owls are more likely to get this question. R- wrong early in the day and right later in the day. And so what this tells us is that during our peak, that's when we're best at analytic problems. The Linda problem is essentially a math problem. I mean, it really is a math problem. It's a math probability problem that has a right answer. It it bends to that kind of logic. And so for analytic problems, things that require heads down, focus, attention, vigilance, we do better at those tasks during our peak. Again, most of us, that's early in the day. For owls, it's later in the day. Now, you mentioned a second problem, Ernesto. Let me read you that problem. It's a different kind of problem. Uh, Ernesto is a dealer in antique coins. One day, someone brings him a beautiful bronze coin. The coin has an emperor's head on one side and the date 544 BC stamped on the other. Ernesto examines the coin. But instead of buying it, he calls the police. Why? Yes, I'll fully admit, I I got the Linda problem in the morning and I totally bombed the Ernesto problem in the morning. (laughs) Me too. Totally. That's exactly, (laughs) I had the exact same thing. Like the Linda, like the the Linda, I I, I, I mean, actually, I actually don't have a good enough recollection of 
when I confronted these things, but I'm pretty sure it was in the morning. And I got the Linda problem right and the Ernesto problem, I was beating my head. All right. And I, it's like, what, 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 what? Okay. And this is how people, so again, that first problem bends to mathematical logic. The second problem does not. And so typically people reason their way through this saying, wait, 544 BC, okay, coin, uh, emperor's head. And, you know, and they just, they can't get it. 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 They often will kind of hit a wall and, and give up. Um, but others will hit a wall and maybe take a break. And then they will have what these group of these researchers who did this work called a flash of illuminance, and they will get the problem perfectly. And the answer to this thing is that you cannot, the coin's a fraud because you can't have a date, you can't have a coin stamped with the date 544 BC because nobody knew 544 years before the birth of Christ that Christ was going to be born. There, there was no, there was no BC and before, until C. So, um, and so it's obviously a fraud. And so this is what, what researchers call an insight problem. And now here's where it gets kind of interesting. So let's go back to our friends, the larks, or back to our friends, the larks. Larks, remember, they get the Linda problem right in the morning. In the morning, they get the Ernesto problem wrong. More likely to get it wrong. And they're more likely to get it right later in the day. Owls are the exact opposite. Owls are more likely to get this problem wrong later in the day during their peak and right early in the day during their non-peak. And so this is what these researchers call, it's Mariecki, Wythe, and, and, uh, and Rose Sachs. This is what they call the inspiration paradox. The inspiration paradox is that for insight problems, we are often better at solving those during our non-optimal times of day. And this goes back to our cognitive states. Remember, during the peak, again, most of us, it's early in the day, hours later in the day. That's when we're most vigilant. We're locked down. We're focused. But vigilance is not the, the right cognitive mode for every type of problem. There's some problems that are better solved by being more mentally loose, by not being vigilant, by being a little bit more uninhibited. And so we're more uninhibited during this period, there's this recovery period where our mood is back up, but we're less mentally focused. So that mental looseness has a benefit. And so basically there's a, there's a formula that we can, we can use, which is essentially this. You gotta figure out your chronotype, but we should be doing our analytic work during our peak. During the trough, we should be doing our administrative work, like answering like the email things that you were talking about, like answering email. Um, during your peak is one of the worst things you can possibly do. And, and I say this as a sinner who has found salvation. I mean, it's a really terrible idea. And then during the recovery, that's when we should be steering a lot of our insight problems. And so if you, if we're just able to do shift around and do the right work at the right time, it has a huge benefit. There is research showing that time of day alone explains about 20% of the variance in how people perform on cognitive tasks. That's a big deal. 
I mean, if you think about like how else we explain the variance in how people perform on cognitive tasks, okay? Like how else? We, like okay, some people are smarter than other people. Some people are more conscientious than other people. Some people have more social advantage than other people, or more training than other people. But we're saying 20% of this variance is explained by time of day. Holy smokes, that's something we can do something about. Yeah, which I think that's it's so fascinating because a lot of times we just think of especially those kinds of problems, we think like we can we're either gonna get them or we're not. And that's a right. measure of, you know, sort of where we are in terms of our cognition, not where we are in terms of time of day. <laughs> right. So but the thing about you is like you miss that you miss the Ernesto problem where you'd be like, Oh, wow, I must not be very good at insight problems. I don't say very good at like sort of uh, looseness and and more and things that are less linear and more creative and then think about what you do like, yeah of course you're you know it's yeah, like right you just you're yeah. just doing it at the wrong you were just doing it at the wrong time of day and and you see this and you and you see some and, and, and here there's some some big implications on this i mean you, you mentioned your 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 four-month-old and, and your five-year-old there's a there's a big study from the university of chicago that looked at about two million uh, uh test scores and grades two million students anonymized uh, from the LA Unified School District. And what they found is that kids who, you know, elementary school, uh, kids under age 13 are almost always larks. Uh, ki uh, kids who took math in the morning s scored better on standardized tests, learned more math, got better grades than kids who took math in the afternoon. And so this thing, you know, we think about our schools, we look at scheduling classes as largely a logistical exercise, but it has huge pedagogical consequences. Kids learn more, kids under age 12, I think kids, in, most larks in general, whatever their age, learn more math, learn math better, more easily, more deeply in the morning than in the afternoon. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, the, the, the studies that you quote are, are really pretty dramatic uh, in the sense that, you know, you, you, these standardized tests that have to be performed, you know, so interesting, like, you know, the the kids who take them in the afternoon just score poor and, and how that relates to the benefits of, say, you know, socioeconomic status or, you know, you know, income and stuff like that. You know, th these things start to wash away when you start considering the timing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it makes it makes a big deal. I mean, there's again, the, there's research out of Denmark showing that you know, taking a standardized test in the afternoon versus the morning is like missing two or three weeks of school. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, to me, like the other, I mean, at, at a top level, it says, geez, maybe we shouldn't be relying on these standardized tests so much mm -hmm. to make education policy. But that's another issue. Yeah. But you also talk about a potential solution to that. There uh, is a great solution to that. One in which you did today. <laughs> uh, indeed. Yeah, exactly. And I, I was not thinking about Denmark during this run. Um, but it was uh, – so what happened is – exactly. The, what, what happened is is that uh, the remedy for this – and again, this is a big deal. And, and, and what was interesting about Denmark is that you had 2 million kids who were randomly assigned to take the test at different times of day. And the kids who scored, took the test in the afternoon scored considerably worse. They scored, as, as I said, like they missed two or three weeks of school. Uh, but the, the remedy for that was that if you give these kids a break before taking the, the afternoon test, 20 to 30 minute break to have a snack and run around, uh, their scores go way back. Their scores go back up. In fact, sometimes even higher than the morning. And so, so there's another dimension of this in, in the science of timing that we have totally and woefully undervalued breaks as part of our performance, whether we're 
kids taking standardized tests or whether we're middle-aged guys talking to smart people on a podcast. If you love digging in deep into topics that interest you, that's what The Great Courses is all about. The Great Courses offers in-depth digital video courses from top experts who are not only extremely knowledgeable, but so passionate about their subjects. You can keep the courses forever. Watch anytime, anywhere. And at Inquiring Minds, we highly recommend the course Your Deceptive Mind from The Great Courses. Over the course of 24 lectures, Dr. Stephen Novella investigates how our brains work to process information and misinformation, how we can learn to separate science from the pseudoscience that surrounds us every day, and how we can become stronger critical thinkers. Now, critical thinking and the brain are two topics that I think a lot about and talk a lot about, and I have to say I've gotten some great tips from Dr. Novella. It's fun to watch a colleague explain things better than you can think of doing it yourself. You'll love watching your deceptive mind, and The Great Courses is giving our Inquiring Minds listeners a special limited-time offer. Order this digital video course and get 85% off the regular price. That's $185 savings. And you can start watching it instantly. This incredible deal is only available for a limited time, and only by going to thegreatcourses.com minds. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com minds. That's thegreatcourses.com minds. What do a South African female DJ, a Wall Street businessman turned mixologist, and one of the fastest men alive all have in common? They all dare to push themselves and chase their dreams and make them into their own victories. This holiday season, GH Mum Champagne has partnered with Vice to showcase these amazing stories of personal triumph. So pop open a bottle of GH Mum Grand Cordon, get inspired, and celebrate your next victory. Hey, you never know, maybe next year your story will be featured. Visit ghmumvictory.com. That's G-H-M-U-M-M-V-I-C-T-O-R-Y.com to see all 10 stories. But even if you're, if you're a CEO of a company, there is a financial reason why you should do your earning calls in the morning. Oh, my Lord. Okay, so, so this one, oh, this is a, to me, this, this is a mind boggler. All right, so this is a study out of, NYU, and it looked at earnings calls from public companies. So every quarter, public companies will have an earnings call. And what they will do is they will gather on the phone analysts, securities analysts who follow their industry, um, journalists, and they will say, oh, here at uh, the Acme Widget Corporation, we had... We expect to have this quarter to have this many earnings. And so our earnings per share are going to be this. I'm, I'm sorry, our earnings per share were, our earnings this quarter were, or last quarter were this. Next quarter, we expect them to be that. And stocks can move up and down. Now, one of the things that's enabled some of this research is the ability to just take ginormous sets of data and do analysis on it. And so there's a, there's a program that allows, that basically can do essentially sentiment analysis on words on on bodies of text and so we can look at a ginormous body of text and say which words signify negative emotion which words signify positive emotion which words are neutral and so what this study out of nyu found is that when you look at these earnings calls and they had the transcripts of i think it was like 20 something more than twenty thousand earnings call transcripts it's really incredible if you look at those 20,000 calls, 
that negative call, that, I'm sorry, that afternoon calls were more negative, irritable, and combative than calls in the morning to the point where it affected the company's stock price. And then, and this is true even now, one, so, so the initial response to that is, oh, it must be that companies offering good news do it early and companies offering bad news do it late. That's not it. Even if you control for that, there is more negative sentiment expressed in afternoon earnings calls than in morning earnings calls to the point where it has a short-term effect on the stock price. Now, this is freaking crazy when you think about it, because if you just think about you know, who's in these earnings calls, CEOs and CFOs of major corporations, of public corporations, generally pretty seasoned people. They are extraordinarily well-prepared for these calls. They do mock question and answer sessions. They have talking points. They rehearse at the calls themselves. There are squadrons of people available at the punch of a button to find out information for them. And the other thing is that they have an enormous amount at stake. I mean, stock prices can move considerably based on these earnings calls. And many of these CEOs, CFOs, have a big portion of their compensation tied to the stock price. So it's literally millions of dollars at stake. And so so you have these like seasoned, well-prepared people with something at stake, and they leak because these diurnal patterns are so powerful. And, and what I thought was interesting in this piece of research out of NYU was that they, you know, these academics did something that academics are sometimes loath to do, which is they gave practical advice. They said, you know, the conclusion here is that companies should do earnings calls and other important corporate communications early in the day rather than later in the day. Yeah. And so there are some other life habits that you've changed as a result of writing this book. Tell us about napping. Well, yeah, nappings are part of breaks. And I was kind of always an anti-napper only because when I took naps, I would wake up and feel pretty bad. I mean, I would feel really kind of groggy and ashamed of myself. And what I found out about looking at the research on naps is, number one, naps are pretty darn good for us. Uh, they, they really do restore physical energy, mental acuity, um, and mood boosters. But the best naps are extraordinarily short, shorter than I would have even imagined. And the, the best naps are, most effective naps are, generally between 10 minutes and 20 minutes long. If you nap shorter than that, you don't get much of a benefit. If you nap longer than 20 minutes, you begin to develop sleep inertia, which is that you know, feelings of grogginess and fuzzy headedness that you, you get if you, if you take a nap for too long. And so, but a, a nap between 10 and 20 minutes is extraordinarily, extraordinarily restorative. And there's a lot of interesting research on how it improves the performance, particularly of tasks requiring vigilance. So things like uh, law enforcement, pilots, air traffic controllers. Those are super, super, super short naps. Yeah. So one of my uh, good friends is sleep researcher Matt Walker, and I can oh, yeah. hear him hear him in the back of my head saying, "Well, you know, people who kind of need longer naps are probably not sleeping enough during the night. So, so if if there's a feeling that you need the ninety minute nap, you should probably look at you know how much sleep you're getting during the night and the quality of sleep. Totally, um, but I, yeah, yeah, but naps, and, and I think for a lot of us people think about naps as well. If I, you know, it's just a way of of paying down my sleep debt. But no. you're saying actually, it's 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 quite different. It's a way no. of getting through the trough. Exactly. No, that's a really, I, I'm glad you raised that. That's a really, really good point. I, I, and I do um, 
So Walker's book is very, very good um, on on a lot of this on the, on the entire subject of sleep. What's it? It's called like Why We Sleep or yeah, exactly. Yeah, Why We Sleep. Yeah, it's a very, very good book. I recommend it to your listeners. And uh, and and so and so these naps are less about sleep as sleep, and they're more about a break. Uh, I consider them a part of taking a break. So at some level, it's, it's a, these, these super short naps are akin to going out and taking a walk, going for a run, that, those kinds of things. And, and what we know about, we know a lot about breaks now as a way to improve our performance and get us through the trough. And so naps are one kind of break to take. Again, a 10 to 20 minute nap. But it's not the only kind of break that we can be taking to improve our performance. And so, you know, and we know a lot about breaks. So we know that breaks that are uh, outside rather than inside are more restorative. We know that breaks that we know, we know, first of all, actually, that something's better than nothing. So even like a really, really short break, a one minute break, two minute break, micro break is actually better than no break at all. So we know that you know outside is better than inside. We know that moving is better than stationary, and and you probably talked about that on your show that that you know the 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 dangers of being sedentary and so forth. We know that moving is better than stationary. We know, and this one surprised me a little bit that that social is better than solo. That breaks with other people are more restorative than breaks on our own, even for introverts, and. The final uh, uh, kind of design principle is that fully detached is better than semi-detached. So you really want to detach when you take your break. So you know, don't talk about work. Don't have your phone with you. And so you know, if you don't if you don't feel like taking a nap in the afternoon, and some people can't do that, I mean, simply every day taking if you can taking a ten or fifteen minute walk outside with someone you like leaving your phone behind will improve your performance. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's January and your book is chock full of recommendations for people to help, you know, take advantage of the science of timing uh, to make their lives better. And I think a lot of people in January, of course, are, are really interested in, in making changes. Um, so one of the things you suggest, for example, is taking a lunch break that is outside and, and not, you know, the sad desk lunch. Right, right. The sad desk lunch doesn't do anybody any good. I mean, we have, you know, what's interesting here is that for whatever, for whatever reason, Americans have fully absorbed the customs and mores of the Puritans. And so we tend to think that powering through is not only efficient, the way to get more work done, but it's somehow morally virtuous, too. And mm. it's just not true. Um, that it, it, I mean, it's flatly not true. First of all, there's no moral virtue in it. The moral virtue, to my mind, the moral virtue is is getting things, getting good things done, and contributing to the world. And in terms of the effectiveness, it's pretty clear. It, we just have to change the way we think about things. So we have to think about breaks as part of our performance, not as a deviation from our performance. Not as oh, I'm slacking by taking a break, but well, of course I'm taking a break because. That's what high performers do. And, you know, and again, I myself had this completely upside down in that I thought that, you know, all oh, amateurs take breaks, but professionals don't. It's totally the, re- the reverse. The professionals take breaks. Amateurs don't take breaks. And so if you think about there, there's some evidence on, say, elite musicians taking uh, that shows that they take more breaks, significantly more breaks than um, 
musicians who are less skilled. Uh, and, and you certainly see it with athletes. Athletes are very deliberate about about their breaks. Yeah. And so, you know, our, our listeners can get more uh, information on what kinds of breaks are the best. We've already talked about a little bit um, by, by reading your book, uh, When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, which is available now at booksellers everywhere. Um, but I also want to talk a little bit about, because we like to think of this podcast as being evergreen, <laughs> what happens when it's not January <laughs> and the kind of, you know, midpoint and sort of, you know, what, what are the kinds of things that we should do in order to get through the midpoint slump? Because the trough isn't just a daily thing. No, it's not also, at all. you know, re- yeah, repeated at different scales, right? So like in the middle of a project, there's a slump. So, so what are some of the things that we can do to make, get through those, those mid, midpoint slumps? Sure. There, it's a great question. And, you know, if, if we widen our aperture a little bit, we realize that timing doesn't only affect, as you're suggesting, Indra, it doesn't affect, it affects more than simply our day-to-day lives, but our, the totality of our lives, because our lives are episodic. You know, our lives are a series of episodes, and episodes have beginnings, middles, and ends. And so beginnings exert one effect on us, Midpoints exert another effect in us. Endings exert another effect in us. So if you think about midpoints, and you know, you say you know midpoint of a project, uh, midpoints are really quite interesting. Midpoints tend to have a dual effect. They can either fire us up or drag us down. So there's some very interesting research across different fields of social science, from studies of well-being over lifetime to studies of performance on tasks requiring attention to detail, showing that. Uh, when we get to the middle, we we slump. So, uh, well-being in the in the over the lifespan goes down, not not dramatically. There's no midlife crisis. That's utter bunk. But there's a there's a U-shaped curve of well-being. So we slump a little bit in the middle of our lives. We slump a little bit, as you suggest, in the middle of projects. We're less meticulous. We're less engaged often. And uh, on the other hand, there's other midpoints that can be very galvanizing. And so. I think the most important thing in reckoning with midpoints is this, if is one, recognizing them, knowing that they exist. Until I started doing this research, to me, midpoints, before midpoints were invisible, I, I never, never thought about it. But if something has a beginning and it has an end, by its nature, it has a midpoint. And so the most important thing is to be, is to be aware of midpoints. The second thing is that once you're aware of a midpoint, you can be I think a little bit more intentional, a little bit more volitional about it, which is, oh, it's a midpoint. I'm not going to let this bring me into a slump. I'm going to use it as a spark. And one way to do that is to, at the midpoint, imagine you're a little bit behind. And so that's a recipe for dealing with with midpoints. And it comes from some very good research. The research on there's research on on work teams, project teams showing that project teams give them 31 days to do something. They don't get. They don't do anything during the first half and only get started in earnest on day sixteen. Give them eleven days to do something. They don't get started in earnest on, until day six. There's something about hitting that midpoint that you know, it's like, oh my gosh, we've squandered half of our time. We got to get going. And there's some pretty interesting research in professional basketball, in the NBA, uh, showing that teams that are ahead at halftime are more likely to win. But there's a very important exception: teams that are trailing by one point at halftime are actually more likely to win than teams that are ahead by one point. And there's some experimental evidence showing that when people feel like they're at, a, at the midpoint of a competition, if they feel like they're way ahead at the midpoint, they get complacent. If they feel like they're way behind, they give up. But if they feel like they're a little bit behind, they really bring it during the second half. So 
be aware of midpoints, uh, be volitional about them, use them as a spark rather than a slump. And if you want a little extra help, just imagine that you're a little bit behind. Well, I, I just have one more question for you, um, although there's so many things, more things we can talk about <laughs> from your book. So, but, uh, and that is, you know, a concept that I'd never really thought about until I read about it in your book. Uh, this idea that before you start a project, there's an exercise that you can do that will ultimately help you get through this midpoint slump and, you know, finish the project, which is the pre-mortem. So tell us about that. Yeah, this is a great idea. It's an idea of a psychologist named Gary Klein, and it works like this. So we think about a postmortem. The postmortem is, uh, oh, here's a dead body. Let's examine it and figure out why this person died. A premortem is doing that before the body dies, before the project even starts. So instead, so people will sometimes do a project postmortem where, okay, the project went on for nine months, it's done. What do we do wrong? A premortem is doing that before the project begins. So you say, this project is going to take us nine months. Let's imagine it's nine months from now and the project is an abject failure. What did we do wrong? And have people start talking about that. Oh, we, um, uh, we, we didn't keep our core partners informed enough. What else happened? Uh, we, uh, we didn't fire people when we knew that their performance wasn't good. Uh, what else went wrong? We uh, uh, we overpromised our client on the interim deadlines, and you think about you just imagine what could go wrong in the postmortem, and then reverse engineer and, and basically don't do that. So I can't remember. It's like keep your partner. Okay, so we got to make sure we keep our partners informed. We got to make sure that we don't set false interim deadlines. Uh, we got to make sure. I don't remember the other thing, but and, and so you reverse engineer that one. I love this technique, and I've used it. I've used it a lot. I use it to write the book. Th that is when I started. When I started. When I you know started in earnest to write this to really work on this book. I I did a a pre mortem because I knew if I if it were two years from that moment and I didn't have a book or even worse I had a bad book. I said, okay, what? Why is that? Why? Why did that happen? And so I knew that it would be. I knew that it was things like I took on too many other things. I didn't say no to enough stuff. I didn't write every day because I'm. I, you know, for me, momentum is really important. So I didn't write every day. Uh, I didn't uh, stay in touch with my editor enough. And I did that pre mortem, knowing, you know, three or four or five things that would could conceivably go wrong in this big project, and. I wrote them on a little card and, and, and kept it on my desk and, you know, didn't do, tried not to do those, those bad things. So I think it's a terrific, terrific technique, very easy to do and, and applicable to many, 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 many domains. I mean, it's even something you can do at the beginning of the year for like when, you know, when totally. you get to December so 31st. It's, it's December 31st. And, and yeah. I said, oh my God, 2019, I got nothing done. It was a complete waste. What did I do wrong? <laughs> yeah, totally. You can easily do that. Yeah. But you can do it. I mean, I, I like it, but you can do it for anything. You could do it, you know, if you're for, for teachers or professors, you could do it at the beginning. You have your students do it at the beginning of your semester. So let's say that, you know, it's, it's the end of the semester and you haven't learned any chemistry or you're flunking the chemistry, you're flunking chemistry. What did you do wrong? Uh, you could do it at the beginning. I mean, any kind of project. You could be doing, you know, let's let's say that you're putting you're putting on a, you know, a theatrical performance, and you know, you're 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 you finally, you know, you're first gathering with the performers and 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 the crew. Okay, it is six months from now, and this play, this performance stinks. What did we do wrong? And I, I think it's a really, really, really good technique. I, I swear by it. Well, that and many more 
uh, great pieces of advice based on science are in uh, Dan's book, When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Daniel Pink, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. It has been a pleasure to be inquired. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds, where you can get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.